eveningness and morningness is genetically encoded. So it's not a personal choice, it's, it's how you're made. And the idea, again, is so the theory is that when we are herds of humans in Neanderthal times, it would be dangerous for the whole herd to be asleep at the same time. So it's much better to have some somebody going to bed early, the other ones getting up, uh, staying up later and so on. So that at, at all times of the 24-hour clock, somebody is awake, or at least where everybody's asleep is minimized. Uh, so it's a genetic trait. Uh, most people figure that out themselves after a while, that they're morning types or evening types. And if you choose the wrong job, then you uh, then you struggle lifelong, right? If you're an evening type and become a baker, then you can do it, but it's painful all lifelong. And on the other hand, uh, performing arts uh, typically attract evening types because obviously you have to be a, a top performance in, in the in the evening when, when you're on stage or, or, or play an instrument or something. Uh, but but it's important to recognize because your goal setting has to reflect that, right? So you have to make lifetime lifestyle adjustments to optimize when you actually at peak performance and when you are uh, want to sleep. Welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. Welcome, we're delighted to have you. I'm Dave. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. Yeah, delighted to have you. Thanks enough for your attention. Okay, question for you. Do you know what energy density is? And do you believe that all calories are equal? Oh, dun dun dun. Uh, so all calories are not equal due to fiber. Traditionally, when we didn't get into industrialization of food and processing food, all calories were equal. However, due to the processing of food, fiber has been reduced, meaning fiber slows down the processing of calories, often not all calories absorbed due to fiber. So fiber is your friend. Typically 500 calories of whole plant foods will fill up your stomach versus 500 calories of ultra processed foods will fill up your stomach about half versus 500 calories of high fat foods will fill up your stomach barely a third. You love fiber, don't you? I do. You genuinely uh, and do. And energy density, David, can you tell us? Uh, energy density refers to the amount of calories per unit, whether it's kilos or grams or mouthful or spoon. So it refers to like all different foods of different energy density, such as like berries and leaves are super low energy density, whereas like- They have approximately 100 calories per pound. Yes. Whereas, you know, leafy, veg whereas like root vegetables are more like 250, whereas starchy beans or whole grains are more like 500, whereas nuts and seeds are more like two and a half thousand. And, and so that would refer to the energy density of certain foods. And obviously if you eat lower en energy density foods, you can eat as much as you want. And that's what we've certainly found in our Happy Shape Challenge that we tell people to eat as much as they want and they're all low energy dense foods. So there's no calorie counting, no portion control. It's a four week course to try to help people. When's it starting, Dave? We have one starting on May the 30th. If you're interested in, you'll right, find But you guys aren't doctors or dietitians. Oh, What's the story? Great one. Good question, Steve. Yeah, we we created and we learned all this from Dr. Sukhanidi. She's brilliant. So anyway, if you'd like to more learn more, we'll put a link down below. It's for our Happy Shape Challenge. It's starting on May 30th. Now, without further ado. Hello. Hi, Hi. again. You're very good at asking each other questions after that. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks a million. Uh, where were you this morning at 10.30 a.m.? Oh, we went to the, a school. Was that where we went? No. Well, yeah. you should know. I'm asking you. Yeah, yeah, we did. We went down to see the circus. Oh, yeah. And tonight we're going doing trapeze, flying trapeze. How come you were down there looking at the circus? Why were the circus in the school? Um, the circus, there, there's a circus on in Greystones and they were doing a charity event on... Thursday night to raise money for a couple of local charities and they asked we come down to meet the acrobats and do a bit of horseplay and a bit of help and promote and what's amazing is we're invited up it was lovely we got to hang out with a clown and uh, his name was Michael but he kind of runs the circus really but 
kind of likes to understate himself by dressing up with a crown with face paint. He's an eighth generation circus performer. Uh, remarkable character. It's so wonderful. I love getting to meet these people that live such different lives. And it was amazing just to chat with him and him kind of, yeah, and talk about the kind of acts and different people in. And there's, the, you know, a lot of the performers, there was some from Uzbekistan and Colombia and Argentina and very international posse. And tonight we're, we were invited up to the circus to maybe do a bit of trapeze. That should be a bit of fun with the kids. So It's gas though, because you're saying like loads of people, they, they come in on a few people who run away with the circus like some girl wanted to yeah you, you, like that's and something I know, in the film and I, I know circus, circus sometimes get a bad rap and people go circus it's such animal cruelty but this is there's no animals in it it's purely human it's performance so it's entertainment it's, 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 it's wonderful entertainment at it's most basic it really the humans is. are the animals yeah and they were referring to that there was a number of like there was a girl Michael was telling us that there was a girl who she was 13 and she'd just been practicing for years in her bedroom because she really wanted to be in the circus and her mother brought her along and she's incredible and every weekend she comes along and she performs in the circus and they teach her new tricks and whatnot or and even she goes Jane to today she, she said she ran away with the circus when she was in 12 or 13 it was remarkable and today she's like the ringmaster ring must be such an interesting life to just go with the circus wherever you go I just think fascinating I'm, I'm intrigued with the different modalities of how we can earn a living and live a, a different life and I just find it fascinating are they only in Ireland this yeah circus? this circus yeah yeah, only in Ireland because just thinking like to get all that equipment overseas yeah yeah theirs is just it's all local all Ireland and then they raise the tents and I'm sure they're all over the world like have I, you ever done the trapeze before uh, I did it in London Elsie my daughter she wanted to do it um, she loved the idea of it so we went to London a few years ago to do it and we went I think it was in Hyde Park and Elsie was seven at the time and she did it and I'm scared of heights and I remember like she had done it and I had to climb up that little rickety ladder and get up on that tiny little platform and I was like I just have to be a man I have to be your dad I have to be a good example and I was so scared and I managed to do it and I was so delighted with and myself and you're going to do it again tonight I don't know if I'm going to do it again tonight. I've <laughs> I didn't say I was going to do it I'd say I bring the kids along maybe I'll do it I, I don't like heights though I would have thought you guys had bungee jumped and stuff yeah, I had bungee jumped I've jumped at a plane and we've done all sorts of crazy things but I don't like heights I just don't like them at all the other day we were in town and we were six stories up and I wouldn't walk across the platform you know there was like just a normal uh, a, a, a very wide bridge a very wide bridge between two buildings with a few, and neither of us would walk across like hey guys I don't want to do it I'll just go to the toilet back here I can't believe you bungee jumped then yeah have you bungee jumped yeah yeah or was that just because he did it I think I did it first <laughs> where did you bungee jump uh, I did it in South Africa I remember I was drunk in a UCD bar and I remember someone talking about there was bungee jumps and you could do it to raise money for charity and I thought I gotta do it and you know you're drunk and you kind of say these oh, things great. and then afterwards I was like oh did you, you forgot you're so afraid of heights and I went and did it and it was you know I was petrified but I, I was, remember I was seeing drunk when you them. did it no 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 Jesus they, no. 20 years horrible. ago they're they're like off the crane and then they just have like this yeah. blow up oh, bag at yeah, the end it yeah. just looks and miserable mine was the, the, one, the one that I did was up I don't know if it was the highest or one of the highest but it was off a bridge in South Africa over a river and you had to go out in the bridge and jump down and like you boing 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 and then they pull you back up to the bridge <laughs> so it was like it, like it was the most adrenaline I'd say I've ever felt did your head I, touch the water you know the way I can't remember I've kind of blocked it out as I did it <laughs> so I don't really funny. want to think about it again <laughs> what do you think was scarier jumping out of a plane or a bungee jump bungee jump way worse the plane there was loads of us and we were all singing all the way and, it, I don't and know, then you just before you know it you're floating down with a thing on you and, and you're feeling yeah. like oh also you're with someone and it's so far away from the ground I feel like it's not the and also the whiplash you can get from doing a bungee jump totally agree totally yeah. agree 
I love uh, that you've done that though. Thank you, sir. Thank you, well thank done. you, thank you. Uh, can we talk about th- this this episode? No. No, please. Okay. Okay, <laughs> well, okay, so sleep has been something that we've been super interested. All three of us have been super interested for a long time. And I've certainly read about it. We record it. We track it. You know, we, we all are genuinely super interested. And today's guest, um, Dr. Oliver, is really, he's, he, he is wise. He is wise. He makes sleep like as Sarah said like I purposely avoid things on sleep because I don't want to know I don't want to get stressed about it but you will not get stressed by this this is very democratic useful it's very practical and it's wisdom as opposed you to will not get stressed if you have issues around sleep yeah, by listening like, to this I like the way like, you talked about performance anxiety relating to sleep oh yeah but it's like if you've read or wanted to read or listen to Matthew Walker who was amazing obviously but like that that's quite intimidating to me yeah whereas think- this wasn't intimidating this was just really practical and interesting yeah and, and like compassionate and gentle and accessible it's just like wow. lovely it was lovely it was glorious so dr oliver he's a he's a german man who trained as a, a doctor over in germany he did neurology in chicago and then he did sleep sleep medicine in stanford, stanford university uh wonderful man lives in london and is obviously he we got to meet him at a golf event we were doing a talk at a fancy golf event and oliver was there a few weeks ago yeah him. we met him we chatted away and it was immediately oh my god i love sleep will you be on our podcast can we record an episode and he said yes i'd love to and uh here it is so uh without further ado we give you all things sleep practical you're gonna learn about chronotypes you're gonna learn about adenosine and all these wonderful little um things around sleep and deeply practical so i hope you really enjoyed and just before we get started, just to say there is a tiny little bit of hammering in the background. Ten points if you can hear it. Hope you enjoy the episode. Bye. Okay, well, maybe let's let's jump straight into sleep because I adore it. I'm like, we're serious fans. And I guess it's something that over, like, as we were, we were chatting with you, like I was saying that, um, you know, you've been a sleep doctor for a number of decades now. And it's probably only been in the last 10 years that it's really got the focus and the kind of the focus and attention that it's the bedrock of health, you know, in equal proportion, if not more, I would kind of say more, even more so than food and, you know, um, movement. And I'd love to, if you could even just say, what's your experience in terms of sleep? Like what, why is it important? Why should people prioritize it? And what do you think, you know, my question's very nebulous there now, but it's, it's just a <laughs> yeah, kick-off no, question. Very precise question, so, Dave. Very imprecise so, question, sorry. So wide open canvas, no, that's great. So, I mean, if if I set three goals that we should get our listeners to is one is to recognize that sleep is important. Now, we have a bit of a um, biased audience. People like to listen to you probably are aware of that by now, but some people are not. Um, what actually happens if you don't sleep enough? Why is sleep a problem? Uh, and, and then thirdly, what can we do about it? And hopefully do something helpful with, with that. Now, just to my background, as you asked about it, so I'm by background a neurologist from Germany, but I did lots of my training in England and then the United States. Um, and and uh, after neurology and electrophysiology and, and epilepsy research, I did uh, some sleep work, mainly at, at the Stanford University, uh, which was the first sleep lab in the world in 1970. Um, and after that, I've been uh, having an you know, outpatient clinic in sleep here, here in England. Um, when I, my interest first started as a medical student, when with a friend of mine, we were discussing stuff, you know, over a bottle of wine in the evening and came somehow on the topic of sleep. And we were both a bit flummoxed that we couldn't really define what sleep actually really is compared to just coma or other states of unconsciousness. And then I thought, I, you know, there must be a good answer, but I just had too much wine. I couldn't figure it out. So tomorrow I look in the medical school library and there will be the answer, right? And guess what? There wasn't. And even as late as 
in the end of the last millennium, um, Alan Hobson, a very prominent sleep professor at, at Harvard, he said the only thing that we can say about sleep is that it cures sleepiness. I thought, well, that's not that's not all that much, right? <laughs> now, so when I when I told my colleagues that I want to study more and become a specialist in sleep disorders, many people didn't barely know how to spell it, let alone that there is such a thing as sleep sleep medicine. Now, that I have to say, over the last twenty years, as you say, uh, has changed quite quite a lot. So by now, you can't open a daily newspaper without reading something about better sleep. Lots of nonsense, but also quite a lot of valid valid points. So at least there's now awareness, public awareness that, that, that sleep is something important. But let me just take a step back. So what, what's sleep about? We sleep about a third of our lives. All creatures with a nervous system sleep. So I'm sure uh, it has to be something important. Otherwise, it would just be a colossal waste of time, right? Um, and if evolution could have come up with a creature that doesn't sleep, that would be obviously a huge advantage, but it hasn't. Uh, the best that evolution could come up with having some creatures that sleep half the brain at the time, because they have to maintain some movements, like for example, dolphins uh, as mammals, they can't dive too deep into the sea uh, without then having pressure problems on their, on their lungs. Or take albatrosses, they glide in the air for more than a whole year without ever really landing. So they obviously need to do something to, to control the movement in the gliding uh, in the wind. And for that, they need half a brain, but otherwise they're still asleep. So sleep is <laughs> fundamentally a, a fundamental function of our lives. And if you don't sleep long enough, uh, people would die. So in Chicago, Alan Rekchev, one of the early pioneers in sleep research, did uh, sleep deprive rats until they died and then try to figure out what they die of. Now, after many decades of research, still not clear what they actually die of. It seems that many things start caving in after about three weeks in a rat. One thinks it's about three, four months in a human. Of course, you can't try it out, but there is a rare genetic condition that leads to death called fatal familial insomnia. So one knows roughly from onset of the disease, it takes about three, four months for people then ultimately to die. Now, a somber topic, but just to say uh, it is as important as eating or drinking. It just takes a bit longer uh, to, to cause, cause problems. And what it does, we now know that uh, sleep has to do fundamentally, amongst other things, but the primary reason is to reprogram uh, circuits, nervous circuits in the brain. Um, since our brain is often likened to a computer, I will use that analogy for a little bit. It basically is a computer that has to self-program without an external access to its uh, chips. So there's no keyboard where you can somebody else can program it. So the, so the brain has to figure it out itself and then reconnect uh, pathways. And with new inputs every all the time, it has two functions, basically. One is to figure out what, what input during the daytime have to be reflected somehow in our programming for the future. And that's about memory formation. By the way, memory is not about the past, but memory is about the future. What have I learned to be better next time the situation comes around? And the second one is what can I forget? And so all the information, what can I all dispose of and get rid of and clear my, my cash, so to speak, overnight? So that's a fundamental function. And then there are lots of other functions that happen to run better while we are asleep, but they're not necessarily sleep-related in its narrower sense, but they're sleep-related because it's easier to do while we do nothing else. So, for example, children only grow in the first few hours of sleep when pretty much our entire growth hormone gets secreted. Now, that has nothing to do with the fact that we're unconscious, but we just lie there, do nothing. So it's much easier for the bones to grow rather than us being active and our muscles pulling bones in all kinds of directions. And there are a number of 
other things, met metabolism, uh, hormones, we may go into some of those in the, uh, later on, have to do with sleep, but they're sort of coincidental rather than being the essential function of sleep. Now, to me, well-being is really a three-legged stool, if you wish. One of them, one of the legs is nutrition. Everybody understands that. That's obviously important what we put in our mouths. Second one is exercise or just moving and being active, right? I mean, most of our body has to do with moving about. And the third one is sleep. Um, and so if people get away with nothing much else, but with a stool that has three legs and none of one of them is sleep, then the message will come across that uh, if you pay attention to your nutrition and you pay attention to your exercise and activity, then also do pay attention with a similar level of priority to sleep. Most of us don't. So that's just a little intro of, of sleep. Good one. Maybe I take a brief brief breath here so you can <laughs> ask questions. I'm sure you want to get me all kinds of tangents and make it more yeah, likely yeah. for our listeners. Oh, we've got we've got a load of things. So uh, maybe the first one, and this is a random myth, and I wondered if this is true or not. This is kind of like total hearsay. You said you often read um, stuff in newspapers, and some of it's good, and some of it's kind of hocus pocus. And I heard someone say one day that six days without sleep will make you go neurotic. Is that correct or not? Yes, no, or is that hearsay? It sounds a bit more like hearsay. It's a bit too general. As some people are neurotic, or even if they sleep well, right? And I'm not staying for a bit longer. Very good, <laughs> but. But the point is, um, the first symptom of sleep deprivation is actually not tiredness, but the very first symptoms is getting irritable and grouchy. So quite often, it's our better half that can tell earlier than anybody else whether you slept well or not. Um, and some some chronic short sleepers, like you know Margaret Thatcher, was said to to work so much that she slept very little, might have been a pleasant, more pleasant person to be near with, but uh, I don't know. But uh, the first thing is irritability, and then the next thing is then declining cognitive function, so memory problems, forgetting things, making silly calculation mistakes and things like that. But at the same time, less obvious are other physical things. Like for example, if you play tennis or golf, good example, accuracy will drop after even an hour sleep deprivation quite a bit. Or if you take car driving, if you only sleep four hours, then your driving performance is as bad as if you are legally drunk. Uh, so it's not just mental faculties, but also physical performance and pretty much anything you want to measure. Um, also immune system and everything else deteriorates quite quickly if you sleep too little. And that goes from a little problem to quite a significant problem if you only sleep four hours or less, so that becomes an issue. So at what, after how many nights uh, you turn neurotic, I think that depends on the uh, original makeup, but sleep deprivation is detrimental fairly quickly, yes. Brilliant. I thought it was only a fun question. Okay, well then, do you have a question or will I just oh, sure I have loads of them. I've got a can I talk just about the importance of sleep and peak performers? So I've often heard that the likes of um, Federer, the, the wonderful tennis player, he used to sleep 12 hours a night and many of the world's best athletes would sleep significantly more than, you know, normal people like myself. And um, I'm just wondering, is there a correlation between sleep and kind of athletic performance and high performers in general? Yeah, generally there is. Um, so Federer is a famous example, but other tennis players also sleep longer. Uh, another famous example is Usain Bolt. He does take a two to three hour nap before he then goes onto the racetrack. And when Usain was asked, what's the common factor of the greatest sporting achievements over the last 25 years? Then without hesitation, he said sleep. Now, sleep has a few elements in terms of athletic performance because it's also very important in terms of muscle regeneration. So doing a lot of exercise and then not sleeping defeats the entire purpose. 
So if you want to um, do exercise, it's important that you get enough sleep afterwards to recuperate and to also for the muscles to actually regenerate and also to build up. So if somebody, let's say a, a body, a, a weightlifter needs to bulk up, the best is to do exercise, take a protein shake and then go to bed. So that combination would give you the highest um, efficiency in terms of um, muscle building. So, so one thing has to do with muscle. The other one, of course, as I mentioned earlier, with the cognitive performance and speed, that's, of course, very important for, again, tennis players when a fast ball comes your way, right? So your, the reflex time becomes very, very important. And an hour sleep deprivation could, you know, change your performance by 2 to 3%. And that is using Bolt's case of a 100-meter sprint. That's the difference between a gold medal and being number four. That's not on the, on the podium anymore, right? So uh, for that, it, it's highly important. The other group of sort of high performance people there's some uh, some jobs that have a very um, you know a very swift decision making demand uh, like many investment firms or, or senior executives in, in certain jobs uh, so highly highly pressurized uh, jobs they also in the days when I started sleep medicine there was still a mature attitude I can you know I can function with I, I only sleep five hours and I'm already on the trading floor with single postdoc exchange opened or whatever this is um, so I think by now most of these professions have realized that uh, sleep is important, that performance is just much better if you had a full night's sleep. Um, and so there it is more the decision speed, uh, the precision, the, the uh, again, irritability and so on, attention span that is uh, impaired very, very quickly if you don't sleep enough. So yes, so increasing, increasingly I have patients like that where they don't have a sleep disorder as such, but they just need to optimize their sleep as much as they need to optimize their exercise and diet. And, and even even on that note of optimizing, so like, you know, I think most people listening have probably heard that whole, oh, we all need seven to eight hours sleep. And that's kind of the general norm. And I think that's what the World Health Organization recommends. And that's the kind of standard which most government uh, health organizations will recommend. And is that what is that your experience? And, and also, I know recently we got these um, trackers that track your steps and they track your sleep. They track, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, I, and I was quite interested because like, I was always against something to track my sleep because I thought, oh my God, geez, I'll start getting competitive with my sleep and it'll create stress and it'll create anxiety. And that was what I had previously thought. But we got these things and we were meant to wear them for something for a number of weeks. And we got quite curious about it. And I was surprised to find that um, I think on average, I wake somewhere between 20 and 30 times a night. A lot of them are micro. I'm not aware of them. And then if I go to bed, if I'm asleep for eight hours, like in bed for eight hours, I'm probably only getting around seven hours sleep. And I just wondered what does, how does that play out or what are your thoughts on that? Okay, a few questions in there. Let me first go to the awakenings and the interruptions of sleep. Uh, so our sleep is not just lights out, off we go asleep and then in the morning we wake up, but we go through different stages of sleep. So from light sleep to a deeper sleep, uh, to dreaming sleep or REM sleep. By the way, we dream all night long, but REM sleep has the name of dreaming sleep because that's a stage when we wake up, we've got a more cinema-like kind of uh, uh, dreams, uh, re recall of it. Um, but we go through several sleep cycles. A cycle is roughly 90 minutes long, plus minus, can be two hours. Uh, and uh, during that time, we undergo through all sleep cycles, and then we go to the next sleep, sleep cycle. Um, one thing that the reason for that is that we don't just get a big chunk of slow wave deep sleep and a big chunk of dreaming sleep afterwards is that uh, 
when going to sleep, a dinosaur or a Neanderthal doesn't know how long sleep will be allowed for when it is safe. So you best get some bits of each and then you wake up, briefly look around, is there any saber-toothed tiger around? If not, okay, take another nap for another two hours. And so over the eight hours, you cover all the sleep needs that you have. So waking up, by the way, is normal during the sleep. When I have people in a sleep lab with electrodes on their head so I can measure from the brainwave whether they're asleep or not, I see that at the end of a sleep phase, Typically, people wake up at least once or twice. The abnormal part is when people don't fall asleep quickly enough. So when they start having then waking up properly and then the mind thoughts spinning around, anxiety and so on, that keeps people up. But if a person only wakes up for a minute or two or even up to three minutes, unless something interesting happens, they forget about it. So the next morning, people report, mm, Dr. I slept like a log, never woke up, but I can see on the EEG recording that they were up at least three, four, five, six times. 20, I would wonder whether that's maybe an overestimate and that gets me now to your second part of the question how what about these tracking devices they're not particularly accurate uh, but we have found that in the same person they're relatively consistently inaccurate if that makes sense so if it <laughs> overestimates or, or underestimates your dreaming sleep versus slow wave sleep for you that's a relatively constant pattern so if you see the different nights with different amounts of these sleep stages that trend seems to be reasonably accurate the absolute number how many percentages which sleep stage you get seem to be off by quite a bit uh, in different devices so um, that's why if i want to track sleep i we use medical um medical grade devices that have you know bigger levels of testing and so on a bit greater reliability but even then um gold standard would be a polysomnogram in the lab but obviously only do that one night rather than uh, can track it for any length of time but at least a comparison of one night with a tracking device one night in the lab gives you sort of a, a estimate of how big the error of the device is if you wish um so Yes, 20 times awakening, I would find unusual. Uh, also, an hour of um, wakefulness after you've gone to bed and fallen asleep would be a bit unusual. Uh, usually, I get 90, 85% sleep efficiency, meaning from lights out going to bed to lights on getting up again, how much of that time was actually not asleep. Uh, is then the sleep um, um, efficiency. So that typically should be between, you know, as I said, 85, 90% or so. But brief arousals are, are, are within normal limits. Good so your other question was... Yeah, I think sorry, I I, no, no, I'm, I'm interrupting you. I apologize. But I think I remember you, I think it was Dave asked you straight away when we met you first going, Oliver, what do you think of these trackables? Do you think they're good or bad? And I think you'd said, or David maybe secondhand said to me, I don't think he's into trackables and that people get, they make can often make people stressed. I just wonder if... You could talk yeah. briefly about that. So the other part of, of, of course, David's question was then, is it good, helpful, or is it causing problems? Now, the good thing is, if you look at it, at least you fulfilled my first request is to prioritize sleep a little bit more. So at least it makes you consciously aware whether you sleep far too little. And most people will be surprised that actually, on average, most people don't actually achieve seven hours consistently. Um, if you do, that's great. But some people will be surprised they actually end up with, with less on a long-term basis, which is a problem. Um, so yes, awareness is great. This, when it goes overboard and you start having sleep performance, oh, I only had 20% REM sleep. I should have 23%. Oh, what do I do next night, right? So you can get yourself into a tizzy. And of course, how much REM sleep depends on many things, like how much did you sleep the night before? Did you have a beer in the evening or not? The, and 
all kinds of things can influence the amount of REM sleep or not of various sleep stages. And you can't really target it all that much. If it's consistently off by a lot, yes, that's interesting. But so the night-to-night performance trends are probably not particularly helpful. In particular, then, if it causes insomnia because at 2 in the morning, you then wake up, oh, I still haven't slept enough of slow-wave sleep, what do I do now? And then, then guess what? It, it causes insomnia rather than help it. So you have to be a bit careful. But I guess that's the same with other metrics that you track right if you if you all of a sudden get slavishly bound to go do ten thousand steps no matter what then probably not terribly helpful neither it's more the awareness that if you only have thousand steps that may be too little you probably have to get out of your chair a bit more uh, but sort of the constant tracking or making a performance competition out of it not so great it's good to encourage people to watch out for it and be more mindful about it and i think that's that's the benefit of it I love your attitude. Very I think it's brilliant. The, you said there short waves and long waves. Is that like your your light sleep is short waves and your deep sleep is long waves? Or I don't quite understand that bit. Sure. So um, it's it's just a description of the EEG waves that you know when you get when you put electrodes on the brain. Um, the first part is that when people relax and close their eyes, they get something called alpha rhythm that's in the back of the eyes. That's an idling between the vision center and the cortex because the eyes don't say anything. And that is sort of in the range of between 8 and 12 cycles per second. It's a rhythm that you can see if a person starts thinking about something concentrated or open the eyes and it goes away again. But just sort of a relaxed wakefulness. And as people then start dozing off and go into light sleep, then that rhythm slows down into what's called theta band. It's just slower, the rhythm. And then as we go into deep wave, deep sleep or slow wave sleep, then the EEG pattern is sort of very slow, very big waves. Um, And in REM sleep, it looks actually just like as if we were awake. So if you just look at the EEG itself, then it can be quite difficult to say whether the person is in REM sleep or in wakefulness. Luckily, there are other parameters that were measured, so it makes it make the difference clear. the question is what what is the biological uh, pattern behind it and no sorry. no 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 the, no the question was just that curiosity it was like so uh, that's really yeah. interesting because the REM sleep is the same as being awake so obviously the REM sleep is what I've understood is that it's uh, it's where a lot of the healing is done and a lot of the restoration and the memory storing and it seems to be the most valuable bit of sleep so maybe your brain your if using the analogy of your brain being a computer the processor is going at full tilt when we're in deep sleep in terms of doing all the healthy things that a sleep can do. Is that right? Yes. Or am I? But it's a bit more nuanced, a bit more nuanced. So if you had a whole night of sleep deprivation, so one night you don't sleep at all, the next night you will have to catch up on slow wave sleep. So it seems that for survival, slow wave sleep is more important than REM sleep. REM sleep seems to be more important for creativity and getting new ideas. So some famous inventors uh, figured that one out that they need, need to wake themselves out of REM sleep and then the next few seconds write down whatever thoughts they still have in their mind and create creative new things seem to be more concentrated there. So Alpha Edison was a famous example that did that. Um, and was his and was his experiment now, where was his experiment where he'd sit in a chair with a with a weight in his hand. And then when he'd yeah. reach a certain state of sleep, the thing would fall and then he'd wake up and go, oh, I've got the answer to the universe and write it down or whatnot. And is that, have you ever tried that? <laughs> Does it work? I haven't tried it myself, no, but, but there are two, two, two levels. So um, so we come, come now into a topic of, of dreams uh, or dream interpretation or purpose of dreams and so on, what that is. So that has to do uh, quite a lot with um, these different sleep stages. Now, the... 
and by the way, there has been lots of research done in the in the 50s and 60s all about sleep interpretation, sort of from the old Freudian original ideas. So that's all history, but that's pretty much gone. But in the last 20 years, um, um, there are libraries that uh, people have collected hundreds and thousands of dream recalls that you can actually publicly access uh, those dream libraries and do research about. Um, so quite a lot have, has been done. Now, the I would say the sort of latest stand of research, which might be wrong again in the future because as you can imagine the dream research is quite indirect because you can't actually see the dream you can only see what people recall from it once they're woken up but it's a quite a fleeting thing since most of our dreams we don't remember but nevertheless so it seems that immediately after falling asleep the light sleep that i mentioned where just the alpha rhythm got slower and it's now called theta that's the time when we wake up people from that sleep stage they are actually still processing daytime problems things that they've thought about and made and get better answers. Um, deep sleep seems to have to more with uh, maintaining our basic functions of what the brain does. And that's obviously 90% of what the brain does is daily living rather than anything fancy, right? Making sure you can still walk tomorrow morning and still that the heartbeat goes properly and your breathing rhythm goes properly, right? All these standard stuff that goes in the background that also needs to be refreshed. Where REM sleep comes in, it seems that the brain is trying to connect disparate memory bits and see whether they potentially have something to do with each other. So if you wake up people out of REM sleep, they typically have quite bizarre dreams where elements of the dream may be quite real. Like for example, they see themselves in a location that they've actually been, and it may look very real, but then it is connected with something that I has in real life had nothing to do with it, and thereby makes it very bizarre. And the brain is basically trying out to seek new correlations and associations and where there's any benefit in it. The idea is, of course, if there is, then I've learned something that makes me better in the future uh, to respond to a situation. Uh, so if a predator comes around or something, can I jump faster in the other direction is better than this one or so on. Uh, and that's why these dreams are quite bizarre. Now, many times, of course, the idea that comes out of that one will be complete nonsense and unhelpful and forget about it again. But every now and then there might be something that's quite useful. And that's what these inventors try to come see whether if they wake up out of the REM sleep phase, is there other new ideas that people haven't thought about it yet? And that, that can be the same with, with artists and so on. But, um, Very interesting. So there seem to be different functions of what, what sleep does. Okay, amazing. Okay, I'd love to get down into the nuts and bolts now because the theory is fascinating. Like it really is and I, I find it fascinating. But uh, okay, back to a couple of like, so sleep myths, you know, let's maybe talk a little bit about sleep myths and about two in particular. And they're not myths at all. They're kind of, I'd love to know the implication of caffeine on sleep and I'd love to know the implication of alcohol on sleep because I'm sure a lot of people listening will go, okay, what's the story with coffee and sleep and what's the link between alcohol and sleep and what are some other myths like, and I'm not saying those are myths at all, but what are myths which you which are common perceptions about sleep which could do with debunking? Even for to lump in with that, like smoking marijuana can often help people reduce their the noise in their head and they can fall asleep. And I wonder, does this impair their sleep or does it actually aid their sleep? So we've got caffeine, we've got alcohol, we've got marijuana and any myths. So you got, you got a load of questions there. We're batching them okay. together. Start to start with coffee. That's an easy one. So first to say, if you have coffee in the evening after dinner and you sleep well, well, fine, good for you. There's no other problem there. But um, there are three things that how our sleep-wake cycle is regulated. The first one is light. The first light in the morning sets our 24-hour clock. 
and then it runs. And 18 hours later, you start getting tired. So getting up in the morning, having bright light is the, the trigger there. The second one is melatonin. It's a hormone that our brain secretes as the sun goes down, the light becomes more orangey red as melatonin levels go up and start preparing the brain for, for going to sleep a little bit there later. And the third one is adenosine. That's a byproduct of our brain activity during wakefulness. So that as long as we are awake, the adenosine level creeps up. And then when we fall asleep, the adenosine gets washed away and digested away. So the higher the adenosine level, the more sleep pressure we basically feel and get tired. Now, caffeine is an adenosine receptor blocker. That means the adenosine is still there, but the receptor that usually sees it is blocked and can't see the caffeine. So it doesn't feel that tired. Problem is, once the blocker is gone, once the caffeine is left, the adenosine level now has reached even higher levels and you get crashed higher because all of a sudden these receptors see the adenosine again that has gone up because you stayed up longer and then you become extra tired so you get a almost a, a, a crash tiredness afterwards but as i say if you fall asleep anyway then enjoy your coffee so there's no other things than delaying sleep onset if you struggle sleeping of course don't have coffee close to bedtime right? um that's an nice is a bit more complicated so, so in the coffee, like often you'll hear, and this would be from newspapers and things like this, or as you said, often people will say, don't drink coffee after 12 noon because coffee has a half-life effect of 12 hours and it'll be in your bloodstream. Half the caffeine will be in your bloodstream 12 hours later. And I've certainly read these type of things and I wondered, is there, yeah, is, yeah. It, it could be sure, true. I mean, yeah, I mean, that that's, you can measure pharmacologically. So just take, blood samples in hourly intervals and you can measure how long it takes for caffeine to wash out um, the point is just having caffeine on board doesn't have another detrimental effect other than if you're sensitive to it you don't fall asleep so if you struggle falling asleep when you go to bed in the evening because you had a cup of coffee too late then don't have the coffee but if you can like myself i can have a cup a double espresso after late dinner and go to bed and sleep just fine so that's okay too. And and ca coffee is a bit like, you know, depending when you read it where, all of a sudden it's good for health and prevents Alzheimer's and God knows what. It comes up every now and then. So but there's no fundamental detriment to sleep from caffeine other than some people being sensitive and not able to fall asleep. Right. So if you tolerate coffee well, you enjoy it and so on, there's no there's no other reason to avoid it. Brilliant. Now with alcohol is slightly more slightly more tricky. First is, some people drink a nightcap to make them fall asleep easier. Now, alcohol shouldn't be a sedative because it would make no sense to invite people to a fun party and give them all Valium, a sleeping pill, and then they all, all conk out halfway through the evening, right? It would be a crazy party. So the alcohol in, at parties is more to reduce uh, inhibitions and make people more chatty and so on, but more bubbly and lively. So if somebody falls asleep after one beer or one glass of wine, that shows that they were sleep deprived to begin with. So it's a quite a sensitive instrument to check for sleep deprivation. Small amounts of alcohol makes you sleepy equals you have been sleep deprived. Very good. So then of course, if you, if you drink more, then of course it becomes a sedative because you get knocked out. The problem is it may help induce sleep, mainly because it relaxes people a bit and they worry less, or that just takes the edge off, or you drink enough to conk out. But after about four hours, people wake up and are even more restless than before, and typically can't sleep well during the rest of the night. On top of that, if it's beer, then of course you have to deal with the fluid that you have taken in and you need to go and pee. But if you take whiskey, that's not so much a volume problem, right? 
But after about four hours, it causes more sleep disruption and it very much suppresses REM sleep altogether. So it is certainly not a very healthy sleep that you have after alcohol consumption. In long-term heavy alcohol drinker, and here I'm talking alcoholics that really drink a lot, uh, that may destroy cells in the so-called mammary body in the brain, and that may cause permanent damage to the 24-hour clock and, um, and cycling. So people with that recovering alcoholics after really uh, having a proper alcohol problem, uh, some of them will never regain a proper 24-hour function. So that's, that's sort of the toxic end of it. But in terms of sleep, no, it's, it doesn't help sleep. The last part on alcohol, it's a muscle relaxant which is fine, but it also relaxes the airway muscles here. And people that are prone to snoring and the big brother of that is obstructive sleep apnea would make that worse. And so the obstructive sleep apnea is a quite an underdiagnosed condition. Uh, and if you aggravate it with uh, alcohol consumption, then, then you have a real issue because it A, disrupts sleep even more. And of course, you have got a higher risk of stroke and heart attack and sleep from obstructive sleep apnea. Wow. Okay. So caffeine, not to like, you know, caffeine, I love, it's, I love it's the case specific. In terms it's very practical, like caffeine, case specific, you know, depending on your sensitivity, but it, as a general rule, you know, it should be fine. Whereas alcohol tends to be probably not the best in terms of sleep. And yeah. I guess each person to their own in terms of alcohol. In yeah, terms of exactly. In, yes. You asked us about, so yes, alcohol not a great idea at larger quantities. If you enjoy a beer in the evening, that's fine, but don't expect it to help sleep. And if you're sleep deprived, that makes you tired. That's a, it's a good alarm bell, so to speak. If after, after a small Guinness, you already feel sleepy, then, then that's, that's not good. Then you should watch your sleep a bit more. But you also asked me about um, marijuana. Yeah, yeah, please. Again, a bit more complicated. Uh, from a sleep perspective itself, as you say, the relaxing effect of, you know, taking the stress of life and so on probably makes people fall a bit asleep more easily because they're more, they're more relaxed and don't worry about things so much. The issue about marijuana is that it sticks around for a long time. So one can find differences in uh, cognitive performance testing and so on up to a week after having smoked a joint. So the, the sneaky bit is if a person smokes a joint and maybe a bit weak one more or something people can be under continuous fog without noticing because simply the, the, the half-life and the, how long it sticks around in the brain is actually very very long and that's sort of more the problem that uh, i think so the cognitive performance is declined uh, and certain um faculties of sensitive sensible judgment uh, is particularly sometimes impaired and that's i think the bigger danger than sort of the short-term sleep effect of, of marijuana but of all the all the recreational drugs it's one of the biologically less harmful ones but i think sort of the psychological effect of that slight fog and so that lasts a long time is underestimated and that's i think where the, where the danger of marijuana use really lies Okay, wonderful. Okay, so we talked about like how sleep works, the theory behind it, caffeine, alcohol, and whatnot. I'm wondering now in terms of practical tips. So practical tips, you know, I remember when I was talking about you, you were saying about the importance of, maybe I'll leave you said, could you talk about some practical tips for anyone listening that goes, okay, right, sleep, I'm listening to this, sleep, super important. You know, Usain Bolt, he runs the quickest man in the world. I want to be like him. I'm going to prioritize my sleep. So how do I, what is it? What is a good sleep routine and what is good sleep hygiene? Yeah. So first is, Think about it and look whether you sleep enough and now we've made that step so you want to sleep better. That's great. Uh, second part is 
be to be a bit realistic as to what expectation to set. And one important factor here is the chronotype. Am I a morning person or am I an evening person? Because there's not much point going to bed earlier if I'm an evening person, then I'll just get frustrated in bed because I can't fall asleep. Um, eveningness and morningness is genetically encoded. So it's not a personal choice, it's, it's how you're made. And the idea again, so the theory is that when we are herds of humans in Neanderthal times, it would be dangerous for the whole herd to be asleep at the same time. So it's much better to have some somebody going to bed early, the other ones getting up, uh, staying up later and so on. So that at, at all times of the 24-hour clock, somebody is awake, or at least where everybody's asleep is minimized. Uh, so it's a genetic trait. Uh, most people figure that out themselves after a while, that they're morning types or evening types. And if you choose the wrong job, then you uh, then you struggle lifelong, right? If you're an evening type and become a baker, then you can do it, but it's painful all lifelong. And on the other hand, uh, performing arts uh, typically attract evening types because obviously you have to be a, a top performance in, in the in the evening when when you're on stage or or, or play an instrument or something. Uh, but but it's important to recognize because your goal setting has to reflect that, right? So you have to make lifetime lifestyle adjustments to optimize when you actually at peak performance and when you are, uh, want to sleep. So that comes down also to uh, when do you do difficult work and when do you do your exercise, for example, so in evening types, so certainly to exercise in the afternoon, evening rather than the morning. Um, so, so that's one thing. Then the second part is what's the right amount? Yes, seven to eight hours is great, but some people need a bit more, some people need a bit less, and you can just try it out. Uh, get, get yourself a week where you're on purpose, make sure that you get half an hour more sleep do you feel any better or not or does your spouse say that you're a more pleasant person to be with as a sensitive barometer so to speak so you can try that um then another part is important not to not to obsess about it too much so the lord gives us some good nights and some bad nights and it will even out and that's fine so you don't have to have your you know eight hours every night otherwise the problem arises so so don't don't make it into a performance anxiety otherwise you achieve exactly the opposite effect now if you sleep well, that's great, and you don't need to worry about more. If you struggle sleeping, and particularly when you struggle far falling asleep, even though you adjust your bedtime to morning time, evening type, and so on, uh, if you have to regulate something, the number one um, factor that regulates our 24 clock is getting out of bed in the morning at the same time every day. And then you have to set the time, whatever that is. If you're an evening, evening type person, then maybe it's 7.30, 8 o'clock, or depending what job you have, potentially even later, or if you're a morning type, then it might be earlier. And it's best combined with immediate exposure to bright lights. So the ideal situation would be if you say, I don't know, 6.30 is the time for you, then you get 6.30, put on your jogging pants, whatever, take the dog for a walk and be half an hour outside without sunglasses, of course, to get bright light exposure. Now, now in uh, our northern country, we get it for free early in the morning sunlight, but in winter, of course, it's dark. So one probably should invest in that case into a bright light box. They're called sad lamps for seasonal affective disorder. Lamps have a particular brightness and a color spectrum. So regular lights wouldn't do the trick. But to do that early in the morning for at least half an hour, 40 minutes, that sets it and that regulates it. Going to bed is then the consequence of getting up rather than the other way around. I know we're all parents and then, you know, focus on when our kids have to go to bed and that's fine. But the, the real important bit is the, the morning wake up time. The second part then, if you're still struggling with sleeping and sleeping through is to do something that initially sounds maybe paradoxical and that is sleep restriction. If you spend too much time in bed, struggling, staring at the ceiling, getting frustrated and so on, you basically reduce the pressure to fit sleep into a certain amount of time. 
So what you can do is you just give the brain a little bit too little time to begin with. So uh, if you get up at, uh, let's say, seven o'clock in the morning, then you only go to bed at midnight or even a bit later by the one o'clock. So you only have about six hours in bed. Uh, that for the first few nights will get you sleep deprived because you don't actually sleep enough until you sleep through that for the sleep reason be swiftly and then you can relax the bedtime make it a little earlier and earlier until you sort of get through again um, so that can be helpful avoiding naps is a good one uh, if you struggled uh, nighttime sleep but let me get back to naps in a second and then as we discussed avoiding caffeine in the evening or if you struggle sleeping just avoid it altogether avoiding alcohol in the evening then also helps um, and then more than that would then require sort of meditation techniques and so on now there are um, there are websites um, where you can get uh, free online cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia advice and those those programs can be very helpful and if it's even more problematic then you probably seek help now i mentioned naps briefly and the question always comes up are naps a good thing or a bad thing now in principle there's nothing wrong with a nap. And if you look at the history of mankind, most cultures in particular in warmer countries all had a siesta because during the lunchtime it was just too hot to do any work, right? It's more the Northern countries where in the wintertime daylight is uh, pre comes at a premium and is very short uh, before electrical light. Uh, so the last thing you want to do is waste precious daytime by sleeping. So that's why you stay up all the, uh, as long as there's, there's light outside. Um, and then the culture has permeated across the globe and so that's now the norm now of course if you have struggled sleeping at night and you don't take any naps back to our adenosine uh, pressure because of course if you have adenosine building up and then you have a nap you drop slightly lower then you don't reach the same adenosine levels in the evening time to push you over the edge and actually fall asleep so if sleeping is a problem no naps but if you sleep well then there's no no problem otherwise with naps only the expectations would be set if you take an hour nap during the daytime, obviously you have to take an hour off your bedtime at nighttime, otherwise you are just uh, in bed for too much and then it becomes less disciplined, if you so will. Um, some people nap well, they can go, to, go down for 20 minutes, half an hour, feel much more refreshed, others feel even more groggy afterwards. And that's it's a more of a personal pattern. So my wife can't nap, if she naps, she's gone for the rest of the night, and then she struggles because she wakes up at two in the morning, and then, you know, it's just terrible, her rhythm is, is mixed up. I nap very well, she's always jealous, so I can take a 20 minutes nap and feel much better. Um, but, you know, you have to find out what works for you. But in principle, there's nothing wrong with a nap. But if you don't nap well, then it's just not for you. Don't worry about it. And do naps and on the topic of kind of peak performers and Usain Bolt or whatever, or Roger Federer, they kind of sleep, uh, you know, more than the average seven to eight hours. And like, you know, in your case, like napping, do you find that is there a correlation between people who nap and, you know, better performance or being less irritable for their families or spouses or whatnot? Or is that purely subjective? It's more subjective because a non-nappers, as long as they get the eight hours or seven hours sleep at night, time would still be fine. So it's, it's more it's more subjective and personal, I think. Oh, that's a lovely. I love that your answers are so practical. I and so, love like I, it's really democratic. I really appreciate. I it. I love how your attitude to it. It's so accessible. It really is. It's wonderful because I've certainly lift, listened to other people who are asleep people, and there it can be quite technical and it can put pressure on you. Whereas your attitude is just so. Performance pressure. You better sleep well, right? So, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, and I definitely doesn't help in life, right? When I've read stuff on it, it definitely does create more performance pressure than what uh, you're saying. There was. Can I ask one question? Which Shawnee kind of was just. Uh, you you go ahead. Sorry. Okay, great. Um, 
sleep and menopause and menstruation so at various different you know stages during a, a female cycle typically hormones will change and just wondering do these affect sleep and if they do is there anything people can do or anything females can do to women can do women can do to um you know to balance this out sure sure it's a it's a, it's a big topic and thanks for bringing it up absolutely um as i mentioned earlier sleep is one thing to, to break stuff. And then there's many other things that happen in sleep, like many hormones, like cortisol, body temperature, all these things cycle during the 24-hour day. And then in women, of course, in 28 days or, or then at lifestyle when, when, when women reach menopause, uh, hormones go all over the place and cause many things. So, uh, and that's quite multifactorial. So it's not a, not a simple thing. So menopausal women get night, night sweats or, or hot flashes. So that alone by itself is uncomfortable because obviously wake up and need to change your pajamas and so on, right? It just disrupts sleep by just being itself. And, but the hormone cycles also cause problems. Um, there are lots of remedies and over the counter and natural things and so on. Point is, most of the natural remedies actually try to use plants uh, that then have some hormonal compounds in it. So while it sounds good and it's all natural and so on, it's just the less less well measured and reliable way than taking hormone replacement. What it boils down to, uh, hormone replacement therapy works very well for people uh, for women in menopause to control these symptoms and also to improve sleep. Now, if somebody gets away with one of the phytopharmaceuticals in a plant, that's, that's great. The problem with many plant products, of course, is you, 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 don't, you can, don't know the dose of the substance in it because it depends on the soil, on the sunshine, and many other things. If that's still okay, and you're on the milder end of the problem, then whatever the plant does or give is good enough. But if it's a more intense problem, then you probably need to get something there where you have a more measured pharmacological dose, so to speak, and then, you, then it becomes a pharmaceutical product, right? Um, so the uh, lots of hesitancy and, and concerns about uh, hormone replacement therapy. Initially, it was about you know blood clots and, and various other and breast cancer and risks and so on. I think that has been by now weeded out quite a bit so that women should speak to their GP or the gynecologist to get more detailed information about it. But generally speaking, if the problem is severe and disruptive enough, that starts becoming the answer. Um, Menstrual cycle, uh, a little, little bit, well, obviously affects women for many years. Um, one can, again, if it's quite severe, SSRIs, it's, it's a serotonin reuptake inhibitors, do help there. But uh, again, it's a question how much of a problem is that you don't have any other more natural remedies, uh, lifestyle, nutrition, and so on, uh, and whether it becomes severe enough that you go to pharmaceuticals. But there are, um, as, as I said, SSRIs um, that, that help that, and you should talk to your doctor about it. But it's a certainly well-recognized problem, not, not a straightforward, easy, easy answer there, but um, yeah, well-recognized. Good one. Nice answers. Okay, I've got two two of my final ones. Okay, one is on snoozing because I'm sure many people listening here are demons for snoozing and pressing the snooze button many times. Oh, we all love it. You're in bed in the wind. You can hear the rain hitting the window oh, and it's cold. And you, and your alarm goes off. No, you're you like, don't. You don't. You're like the I most disciplined person I ever minutes. know. So you definitely don't. Not that we share a bed or even a house, but just, you know, you're very disciplined. And then my second question is about a sleep bank account. Like you mentioned something about 
you know, one night and then the next night. And how I understand it is that like you can't actually make up if you get a bad night's sleep. It's not like you can, you go in debt one day and then you go on credit the next day and it balances out over the course of the week. Like if you could maybe talk about, is there the idea of a sleep bank account and then snoozing? Those are my two areas I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Sleep bank account, very limited. Uh, so if you're talking about two days or something, yes, of course, you can pre-sleep before you go to a party and you can get a recovery sleep afterwards and so on. Yes, so within two, three days, you can balance that. What doesn't work so well anymore is to do five hours sleep all week long and then uh, having a, a long uh, snooze on Sundays. So that's not working anymore properly. Um, so that, that that does have long-term consequences. So if you have five days significant sleep disruption and sleep sleep. Um, sleep uh, deprivation uh, so in the, and even worse of course if people think well during my professional life i sleep less than when i retire and i can catch up and so on that that doesn't work that way so as i said within two three days probably yes anything longer than that not really doesn't doesn't really work um snooze button morning types sometimes wake up and are full of energy and can't wait to get out of bed so they don't like the snooze button so it almost indicates that you may be a bit more of an evening person or at least you wake up time is earlier than you would naturally like. First question would be, can you adjust your uh, day routine so that you actually get out up a half an hour later or so? Um, if one has the luxury to, to do that, great. If not, then of course, of course, stuck with the wake up time. Um, and it's, I don't think there were any particular studies that I'm aware of whether that makes any big difference to sleep, but the point is the 15 minute snooze button doesn't really get you into any significant sleep stage right it's too short to get into deep sleep or even REM sleep and you're probably hovering around to stage one two sleep so a very superficial sleep that doesn't really add terribly much to your recovery so that a little later you're not you're not more refreshed half an hour or 20 minutes later than you were earlier you, you probably just took a bit longer time to wake up and finally you just get closer to your biological chronotype of wake up time but um, if you find it comfortable enjoy but it doesn't really add much to sleep. So it would be much better if you set your alarm clock then 20 minutes later and wake up then because you would have the continuation of a REM sleep phase or something a bit longer before the alarm clock hits. So you actually do get some quality sleep. If you wake up first and then you, you, you know, drowse along for the next 20 minutes, you don't really get much recovery out of it. It's a bit of a waste of time other than comfort. And if it's enjoyed and great for you, but otherwise it's not really valuable. Good answer. And okay, okay, final question is about alarm clocks. So alarm clocks, like I've always... Oh, this is very personal. Th this is personal now. So I wonder if this, if this is purely personal, a personal question. But like uh, alarm clocks, I think are quite a, like uh, an abrasive way to wake up in a sense that, you know, you're fast asleep and you're in your deep sleep and you're dreaming and making all these wonderful connections and whatnot. And then suddenly beep, 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 and people wake up. And like, I know nowadays there's different type of alarm clocks, ones that slowly the light comes on and then the birds start twerping, chirping or whatever. And those are the type of ones. And then in the last couple of years, like with COVID, the last couple of years, it was easy enough to kind of go, okay, well, I don't need an alarm clock because there's nothing particular I've got to get up for. So I kind of stopped using one altogether. And now I kind of just wake up naturally. And I just wondered what your thoughts 
are about alarm clocks or is it purely down to chronotypes and people's body schedules and all sorts of things? And ultimately Dave's wondering, is he doing great now that he doesn't use an alarm clock? No, I just wondered, <laughs> is it relevant to anyone? Because like alarm clocks, I don't think are a nice way to wake up. And I wondered, maybe it's just my ego. Yeah. I'm looking for a pat on my back here. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're right. And onto something, alarm clock that shrills you out of REM sleep phase. And so it's, it's not great. No, absolutely. And people even develop phobias from it, right? Get, get, get nervous about the alarm clock getting in them uh, up in the morning so the um the, the light the gradual uh lamps certainly make a much more natural wake up time in particular in winter when it's dark now in summer i've got one like that but my bedroom gets bright enough anyway so i don't even see the, see the bright light from the alarm clock anymore in summer so but um yes there would be a better idea uh, the second part is if you keep your wake up time fairly consistent and it's relatively close to your chronotype. Typically what people find is that they start waking up just before the alarm clock. And that would be the ideal situation, right? And that says that you actually slept enough to wake up, you anticipate your wake up time, uh, and you're not still in some deeper sleep phase, and then you switch the alarm clock off 10 minutes before it actually goes off. So that would be the, the, the perfect solution. But I, I agree, uh, loud trilling, ringing noises and so on, it's, it's, uh, it's not great. Great. Okay. Uh I was gonna, I was gonna just gonna say, Oliver, I've loved chatting with you. I think you're brilliant. I, I love your practical, pragmatic, super accessible approach to sleep. That it doesn't become this stressful thing that, as you mentioned, performance anxiety that induces performance anxiety. So yeah, it's been great. Uh, thank, thank you. It's it's a bit like bit like exercise, right? You have got your two hour long scheme, but you never do any of it. So the only exercise that's any good for you is the one that you actually do. And if that's not the perfect routine, well, still better than nothing. Right? wonderful well I really enjoyed this this has been brilliant I think I've certainly found this super useful and for anyone listening to learn more about your work where would they where would they go to learn more of your work um, ideally you send me an email um, I, I haven't got a big website yet but I'm working on it so that, that should be coming up later in summer uh, so best, best to just contact you and you, you put them people in touch with me that's the easiest okay brilliant. brilliant brilliant wonderful well this has been great Oliver you're fabulous thank you very yeah, much great fun thank you I loved that what a lovely kind wise man yeah I think wisdom and just so pragmatic about it he took kind of all these niggly rules out of it and just kind of went well it's very personal if caffeine gets in the way of sleep well then don't drink it you know and I loved the big thing which we were just discussing there was chronotype which I think is something which I think is so relevant and he really brought it to light there in terms of some of all of us have a predisposition to be whether we're an early morning bird or we're a night owl and this would dictate what time we should wake up and how preferably the kind of jobs we type of do and our lifestyle. And I thought that was so interesting. And the fact that adenosine is one of the hormones which build up throughout the day. And that's almost like one of the things that instigates your, your drowsiness. Yeah, I, I find that wonderful. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed that. Oliver's brilliant. If you want to learn more, uh, we'll put a, just send us an email and we can put you in touch with him. And as he said, he's got his website coming later this summer. So you'll be able to check him out specifically there. Yeah, but what a gentleman. What a wonderful, accessible, just yeah, such inspiring practical, human. Really, really inspiring in so many aspects. So uh, yeah, big shout out to Oliver. And um, I hope you found some this very useful. Oh, and just a quick recap. If anyone is looking to support this podcast, we thank you. Uh, you can support us by buying our new book. Our new book will be out by the time this podcast is released. It's called The Veg Box. It's amazing. It's epic. It's going to help you cook amazing veg in accessible ways and save money all the while doing it. Yeah. Thanks, Mel. Bye, 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 bye. bye, bye. bye, bye.